0: My last night of childhood began with a visit home. Tagatoi's sister had given us two sterile eggs. Tagato gave one to my mother, brother, and sister. She insisted that I eat the other one alone. It didn't matter. There was still enough to leave everyone feeling good. Almost everyone. My mother wouldn't take any. She sat watching everyone drifting and dreaming without her. Most of the time, she watched me. I lay against Tagatoi's long, velvet underside, sipping from my egg now and then, wondering why my mother denied herself such a harmless pleasure. Less of her hair would be gray if she indulged now and then. The egg's prolonged life, prolonged vigor. My father, who had never refused one in his life, had lived more than twice as long as he should have. And towards the end of his life, when he should have been slowing down, he had married my mother and fathered four children. But my mother seemed content to age before she had to. I saw her turn away as several of Tagatoy's limbs secured me closer. Tagatoy liked our body heat and took advantage of it whenever she could. When I was little and at home more, my mother used to try to tell me how to behave with Tagatoy. How to be respectful and always obedient because Degatoi was the telic government official in charge of the preserve, and thus the most important of her kind to deal directly with Terrence. It was an honor, my mother said, that such a person had chosen to come into the family. My mother was at her most formal and severe when she was lying.
1: I can remember plenty of lazy Sunday mornings wrapped in the many legs of my maternal insectoid caregiver, Kadougi Oh, Kadugi. Those were the days.
2: <laughs> Where do I get my hands on these eggs? That's what I want to know. <laughs> they get you high and they make you younger? I know. It's like some kind of bizarro meth or something like it's that. It's beautiful. What is that, all that nonsense we just heard? That
1: was the introduction to Blood Child a short story by author Octavia E. Butler, a strange, weird science fiction story that Lovecraft couldn't and maybe wouldn't have read because it was Mm. produced long after his death.
2: I think this story would have freaked Lovecraft out a bit, but I think he also would have loved it. Or aspects of it, at least. Of course, the Lovecraft that could have read this story, you're right, would have to be an alternate history Lovecraft, since the author, as we know him, died in the 30s. This story was published in Isaac Asimov's Science Fiction magazine in 1984. So this is a 94-year-old alternate reality Lovecraft that feeds it. (laughs) And this Lovecraft has long since discarded his racist views. He grew out of that. And your average person really only knows him from Hollywood Squares. But he is a big fan of Octavia (laughs) Butler, the 94-year-old alternate reality.
1: Uh, the word on the street is that it is Black History Month. Yes. And all month we will be covering black authors who dip into the world of horror, science fiction, or the weird.
2: And I'm so glad we're doing it because this story is awesome and i'm so glad it got recommended to us yeah Uh, we've also got a fantastic reader this week andrew weary who is making his debut on the show and (laughs) we gave him a doozy because there are some weird sci-fi gobbledygook language
1: but we also have a sponsor this month the book pulp sonnets
2: this is the exact kind of thing the big sonnet is always trying to keep people from hearing about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Shakespeare and the St. Vincent Malay. Yeah. They've got a good thing going with all the weddings and the funerals. They don't want you to know about the kind of sonnets people are talking about on the street. Yeah. But we're not afraid of Big Sonnet here at the show. No way. And that's why we want you to know about this book, Pulp Sonnets.
1: Pulp Sonnets is a collection of sonnets by author Kate Sherrard. This is a lovely read and a good looking book to boot. Each chapter is a day of the week, but with a theme. So it's Mystery Mondays, Terror Tuesdays. Western Wednesdays, mm-hmm. and I don't know how much poetry you consume, but this book has roused my hunger for sonnets. <laughs> and Lovecraft himself—he was a poet and a lover of poetry—so it seems quite apropos. Let's give folks a sample. This is called "Message in the Bones."
3: Down in the deepest depths, where sight was not, though eyes might be as vast as car hoods, dwelt a lonely being, far from where the hot and sulphurous water rose. She barely felt the cold primordial, her senses tuned to other stimuli, that she might reach and grab and then dismember her strange food, then make of it her art, that she might teach her unborn spawn her ways of living, for she knew that she was soon to perish. Years became millennia, as ever more of her descendants conquered over beers One day, young Noah Prentice saw and knew exactly what she needed him to do.
2: That's actually got some imagery that's related to today's story. Yes, it does. And it's a very creepy-sounding sonnet. And that was was Rachel Lackey reading that. That
1: was my lovely wife, Rachel, uh, uh, popping that bad boy out.
2: (laughs) Think she could do another one?
1: I think so, yeah. This one's called Bro's Time of the Month. It has a kind of special significance to us. Well, to you.
3: Chad, bitten on the shoulder at age 10 did not begin to howl till puberty or took him. We first saw the problem when he yanked the fillings from his teeth, I'm free. Each full moon thenceforth brought us terror and a lot of naked chad tales to be told at parties. Every escapade we planned risked ruin due to his condition, old it got plum ancient. Then things just got worse. Some player shot him full of silver, dead. But that freed none of us from his damned curse. A werewolf buddy's bad enough, but dread. More so, the ghost that monthly grows ghost hair and fangs and scares off ladies with his stare. (laughs) Ghost werewolf!
1: Your dreams have come true,
3: Chad.
2: Yes, I love it. That is both beautiful and powerful. And you know, I think that sonnet actually raises a little awareness. (laughs) there. Th- something people right. might not know. There are a lot more werewolf ghosts than there are <laughs> werewolves. Oh, true. But, you know... People can't see them, so it's just out of sight, out of mind. That is true. You know, that's really tragic. I'm really glad that Kate wrote that sonnet. (laughs) You know, I just watched that movie Hidden Figures, which is good. It's about Catherine G. Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson, who Mm -hmm. were black women. Oh, right, yeah. Who worked at NASA and were crucial to getting John Glenn into space. Right. I really recommend people seeing it. I do wish they had covered some of the other hidden figures of that era, namely all the werewolf ghosts (laughs) who helped us get to the moon. (laughs) I mean, when you think about it, who wants to get— To the moon more than a werewolf. True. Who understands flight better than a ghost. Wow. Just follow the money. That's all I'm saying. It's all in there. Yeah, it's right there. Follow the money. (laughs) But for more of... (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> but for more of those wonderful sonnets, I mean, it's a whole book chock full of them. Pick up Pulp Sonnets by Kate
2: Sherrod. We'll put all the links up on our show notes. Get the paperback, get the ebook. It supports great writing. It supports this show. And it's a nice kick in the pants to Big Sonnet. Yeah. It's Pulp Sonnets by Kate Sherrod. Screw
1: you, Big Sonnet. Now, before we get into the story, I want to talk a little bit about the author, Octavia Butler.
2: We do have a lot of story to cover here today, so we'll keep this somewhat brief. What do we know about Octavia? Uh,
1: Well, she's, first of all, the most modern author I think we've covered on the show. She was born in 1947 in Pasadena, California.
2: She won multiple awards for her work as a science fiction writer. This story alone, Bloodchild, was the winner of the 1984 Nebula Award for Best Novelette 85 Hugo Award for Best Novelette winner of the 85 Locus Award for Best Novelette and the 85 Science Fiction Chronicle Award for Best Novelette yes that's right in 1995 (laughs) she became the first science fiction writer to receive the MacArthur Fellowship nicknamed the Genius Grant so that's pretty incredible but of course in childhood things weren't so rosy she was the only daughter of a housemaid and a shoeshine man there in Pasadena Her father died when she was seven, and her grandmother stepped in to help raise her. It was a very strict Baptist environment that she grew up in. Mm -hmm. She was terribly shy when she was young, and she had issues with mild dyslexia. And so she spent a lot of her time away from other kids in the Pasadena Public Library, getting really excited about reading. She quickly found a love for science fiction and asked for her first typewriter when she was 10. Mm. She could start writing. In her bio, it says she became unsure of herself for the first time at the age of 13 when her well-intentioned Aunt Hazel conveyed the realities of segregation in five words. Honey, Negroes can't be writers. Mm. People were telling her she couldn't do it. Nevertheless, she persevered in her desire to publish a story. She even asked her junior high school science teacher to type the first manuscript she submitted to a science fiction magazine. She just kept going. Hell yeah. I found this interesting. At 12, she was watching the televised version of the film Devil Girl from Mars, (laughs) and she was convinced that she could write a better story than that movie. Yes, she was right. (laughs) She was right. She drafted what would later become the basis for her Patternist (laughs) novels, which are very famous. She attended Pasadena City College by night, won a college-wide short story contest from wikipedia it says she also got the germ of an idea for what would become her best-selling novel kindred when a young african-american classmate involved in the black power movement loudly criticized previous generations of african-americans for being subservient to whites as she explained in later interviews the young man's remarks instigated her to respond with a story that would give historical context to that shameful subservience so that it could be understood as silent but courageous survival. Mm. I think that idea links directly to the story that we're covering today. So just to quickly finish off the bio, she continued to work and be involved in workshops. She got the attention of Harlan Ellison, who mentored her, as well as a few other folks. She broke through with a series of science fiction novels in the 70s and worked all the way through the 2000s. She is no hidden figure. She is one of the most respected and best-selling science fiction authors out there. Unfortunately, she passed away in 2006 at the age of 58. There's a lot more we could say about her, but hopefully we'll have some time at the end of the episode. Let's just get into the story.
1: All right. The story starts off with a family on an alien world. Our narrator is a young man or boy, not really exactly sure how old he is, called mm-hmm. Gan. He lives with his mother and a few brothers and sisters. His father passed away when he was young. He also lives with an insectoid alien called Tagatoy. She belongs to this race called the Tlik. She doesn't live with them as much as uh, she visits a lot. You know, she's got a house right. somewhere else, but she comes there and hangs out with the family all the time. Tagatoy is a politician in charge of the preserve, which is where all the humans, or Terrans as they call them,
2: live. Right. And at first I didn't realize this isn't Earth. Yeah. I thought that this was Earth and we'd been invaded, but later you find out that this is a colony that's fled Earth.
1: She shows up and gives them unfertilized talik eggs, which they drink up and then they get high on. And the eggs also have the added benefit, like you said in the beginning, of keeping you young and doubling the human lifespan.
2: It's pretty clear without having to overtly say that this is an occupied people. They are not free and the eggs are their soma. Right. You know, it's there to kind of keep them fuzzy and docile.
1: <laughs> Gan's mom says it's an honor to be part of Tagatoi's family, but Gan knows that his mother is lying. But what about? Gan's into it. You know, the, the fact that Takato is part of their family, so why isn't his mother? He knows that they were friends when they were younger, Takatoi and his mom. They've known each other for a long, long time. Now, Takatoi she likes to come for visits and lay on this big, giant couch thing, that's made just for the insects and then have the humans crawl up on top of her and share their warmth.
2: Uh, but clearly mom is only putting up with the situation out of some kind of necessity. She's very bothered by what's going on here.
1: These things are like three meters long.
2: Well, they're like, like 10 feet tall.
1: They're huge. Gans' mom, Lian, isn't eating Any egg. And she says that she doesn't want any, and Takata pushes her a bit. Leanne relents and then drinks some of the juice that's inside of it, and the lines on her face begin to smooth, and she gets all dreamy eyed.
2: She says, Sometimes I forget how good it is. And I feel so bad for her right away. You know, she's clearly resisting the only small way she can by refusing these eggs. Mm -hmm. Even that is so difficult because they do provide. Relief
1: So Togato asks Why Lian is in such a hurry To be old And I'm thinking Because she wants to die To escape this freak show
2: Yes I know And there's also This controlling aspect To that right Where it's like Hey baby, I give you everything you need and you won't get pretty for me? (laughs) (laughs) That's really how it feels.
1: We find out that the talik outside the preserve want more access to humans, either by courting them or paying them some way that they can be able to get to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, For what purpose, we don't quite understand yet, but we'll find out soon enough. Many talik were desperate for humans and they were willing to do whatever they had to to get access to them. But this new system with the preserve stopped human families from being split up and... On occasion, Gan was able to see the outside world and the desperate stares he got when he was with Tagatoy. Gan's mother would say to him, take care of her, meaning Tagatoy, as in she's the only thing protecting us from the outside world. Who
2: knows without her maneuvering what would happen to them. It's odd because it seems like they are allowed their dignity, they're allowed to stay together as families, the humans, Mm -hmm. but... Is this because that the the Talik have respect for them, or is it because they are a rare thing that's been commodified? They're trying to keep them scarce so they can use this for political leverage over all of the rest of the Talik. Could be. It seems like there's a class system happening based on these humans within the alien society as well.
1: So Tagatoi lets Gan down out of his out of her arms, tells his mother to, you know, come come warm me. And so she crawls onto the couch with this insectoid creature. Again, it's really big and has lots of legs and this whippy tail with a little stinger on the end. And when Lane gets in, Tegatoi stings her with the tail right in the leg. And it draws a little blood and she cries out and says, mostly in surprise because the sting doesn't usually hurt. But it drugs you up. I
2: mean, this is like giving somebody an injection against their will, though. Yeah. She, she wasn't asking for it. So whether it hurts or not, it's still violent.
1: Yeah. So Gan's mom, in her drug-induced stupor, says that Tagatoi can't take her son from her. Nothing can. And Tagatoi says, oh, she wouldn't and nobody can. She totally humors her.
2: Sober, she wouldn't have permitted herself to, to talk about this kind of thing. But because yeah. she's been drugged up a little, she starts saying things that he thinks she'll be humiliated by the next day. But clearly the mother has made some kind of deal and is it's made her sick this deal, yeah. you know. And that's why she's resisting taking the egg. That's why she's resisting participating in this uh, happy family.
1: When Lian was young, Tagatoy introduced her to Gan's father and she promised one of her children to Tagatoy and not to go to some stranger.
2: Right. And the Tlic seemed to have a much longer lifespan than humans, but Tagatoy was going through some adolescent stage of growth right when Lian was as well, so they grew up together in that sense and became best friends as children. Leon even says in this moment while she's drugged up, I should have stepped on you when you were small enough. Although I don't think Tugatoy was ever small enough for her to do that. Yeah, clearly she's drunk enough on the egg stuff to be honest about how she feels. Right. It also seems like the marriage to this man was somewhat arranged as well. Yeah. He, he was a lot older than her by virtue of the drinking the eggs. Yeah, and even though she was, through her son's perception, happy with the marriage, it was the insect that introduced them. You know, right? <laughs> There's a price for living in this preserve, which we learn is that you have to give up one of your children for the ability to live here. But they don't. But yeah. not, but for what? We're not sure exactly.
1: She was going to use Gan's older brother, but Tagatha. So I thought it would be better if she was around the whole time from birth. So when Gan was born, Tagatoi was holding him minutes after he was born. He doesn't know a life without her.
2: They're very close. This insectoid lady. And his sister loves Tagatoi as well. She actually wishes that she had been the one chosen, not her brother. Mm-hmm. That older brother, uh, he seems pretty angry toward the Talik. A little rebellious, but he won't talk about it much. He does make sure he gets high with everybody else. He always gets his share of the egg, though.
1: While they're getting Lian ready for bed and her second stinging, Mm -hmm. uh, Tegatoy hears something.
2: Yeah, they want to go check it out outside. There's a paragraph here that struck me. It says, I left my sister and started to follow her out the door, though I wasn't very steady on my own feet. It would have been better to sit and dream, better yet to find a girl and share a waking dream with her. Back when the T'Lix saw us as not much more than convenient, big, warm-blooded animals, they would pen several of us together, male and female. And feed us only eggs. That way they could be sure of getting another generation of us, no matter how we tried to hold out. We were lucky that didn't go on long. A few generations of it and we would have been little more than convenient big animals. Wow. So they, they've allowed them some kind of dignity in these family things. Otherwise they would have just been the way that we stuff cows full of, you know, force feed yeah. animals and just keep them... You know, fill them full of antibiotics and force feed them so we can can harvest them. That's what they could have become. Anyway, I'll just leave that there. Something to think about. They check on the disturbance.
1: They go on and they see it's a human who is trying to make his way to a call box, but is very ill.
2: Mm -hmm. He's a young guy, dangerously thin. She says to Gan, you don't want to see this. It will be hard. I can't help this man the way that his Talik could.
1: So Tagatoi wants to send Gan to go get help, but he insists on helping her, so they send his brother.
2: Yeah, the brother is stronger and probably could have helped out better here holding this man down, but tagatoy relents, lets Gan stay. She tells the brother to go get the tlick that this guy's companioned with. I don't know what you would call Yeah, that. sure. The man's name is Brian Lomas.
1: They bring this man into the house, and tagatoy tells Gan to go out and kill a large animal for the farm and bring it in.
2: Yeah, is getting him all stripped down, ready for some kind of surgery or something, and says, you know, you got to go kill one of the livestock which he's never done before.
1: So Gan goes into the kitchen and gets a gun that his father had hidden. Now, guns are illegal on the preserve, but they have a few hiding around the house. And there are some hints that human and tele- relations weren't so friendly in the old days. And he, yeah. when he gets the gun, it's with some trepidation but mm-hmm. he does it and he goes and kills the ant the caged animal with it which is called an octi and then he brings it into the house
2: and this octi is a big breeding male so his mother's not going to be happy about it but it's the right size for whatever it is they're doing here he lays the animal to the side and he actually offers a knife to, to god toy but the insect lady has got her own way of doing things it says she extended claws from several of her limbs and slit the octi from throat to anus yeah. Doesn't need a knife. She can do it on her own.
1: So, yeah, man, these things are really dangerous. Yeah. To lick here. I mean, they're huge and mm-hmm. they've got the stingers and they've got these claws and very disturbing things. Uh, so, Tagatoi tells Gan to hold the man's shoulders down. Gan is freaked out by this guy and he doesn't want to touch him.
2: Mom tries to stay and help him hold the man down, even though she's very tiny, but the boy says, No, 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 I'll I'll do it. I got it.
1: Tagantua tells the man that that she stung him as much as she can safely, and when it's over, she'll sting him to sleep. And she goes on to say that soon, Takotgif will arrive and give him eggs to heal him. And the man calls out Takotgif's name. (laughs) Takotgif! She put one of her claws on him and then gives him a rolled up shirt to bite down on.
0: And she opened him. His body convulsed with the first cut. He almost tore himself away from me. The sounds he made. I had never heard such sounds come from anything human. Tagatoi seemed to pay no attention as she lengthened and deepened the cut, now and then pausing to lick away blood. His blood vessels contracted, reacting to the chemistry of her saliva, and the bleeding slowed. I felt as though I were helping her torture him helping her consume him. She found the first grub. It was fat and deep red with his blood, both inside and out. It had already eaten its own egg case, but apparently had not yet begun to eat its host. At this stage, it would eat any flesh except its mother's, let alone, it would have gone on excreting the poisons that had both sickened and alerted Lomas. Eventually, it would have begun to eat By the time it ate its way out of Loma's flesh, Lomas would be dead or dying and unable to take revenge on the thing that was killing him. There was always a grace period between the time the host sickened and the time the grubs began to eat him. Tagatoi picked up the writhing grub carefully and looked at it, somehow ignoring the terrible groans of the man. Abruptly, the man lost consciousness. Good! Tagatoi looked down at him. I wish you Terrans could do that at will. She felt nothing. And the thing she held.
1: Ugh. Ugh, Yeah, it's pretty nasty uh, stuff there. So Tegatoi starts pulling out these grub-like worms, 15 centimeters long, and she puts them in the carcass of the dead animal.
2: This is essentially a C-section that she's performing. And these are young, slick maggots.
1: She pulls out a few of them. She says, uh, one more, I think perhaps two, a good family, and a host animal these days, we would be happy to find one or two alive. She glanced at me. Go outside, Gan, and empty your stomach. Go now while this man is unconscious. So Gan goes outside and throws up because this is freaking disturbing to watch, and he's never seen anything like it.
2: Right, and now we're starting to realize that this is going to happen to him as well. Yep. There's something about humans that make them such excellent host animals, it's almost a talent that we biologically have. Yeah. It's much better to use us than, you know cattle or anything like that. It says here, as Gan thinks about it, I had been told all my life that this was a good and necessary thing Tlick and Taryn did together, a kind of birth. I had believed it until now. I knew birth was painful and bloody no matter what, but this was something else, something worse, and I wasn't ready to see it. Maybe I never would be. Yet I couldn't not see it. This is going to cause a big change in how he perceives the world.
1: So when he's out there, Takote the Gif shows up and he tells her that she had seven babies and one of them is a male, which is Kind of rare, I guess, with their species. And she asks about Lomas, the man, and Gan says that he's alive. So she seems concerned about him. Mm. I don't know if it's any kind of emotional concern or just out of necessity. He's her breeding apparatus. That's what's really good about this story is it's sort of ambiguous. You're not sure if these things are really manipulative or if they actually have feelings for the humans. Absolutely. Uh, His brother comes up to him and says, uh, you found out more than you wanted to know, huh? And Gan gives him this dirty look. And, he's, and he says, uh, don't give me one of her looks. You're not her. You're just her property.
2: Gan realizes that he even mimics the expressions of Togatoy And he loves her. But his brother, who used to feel the same way, went through some kind of change in attitude toward Togatoy around adolescence.
1: And then Gan says, hey, look, Lomas called out for her, for his uh, partner to coat GIF as it was happening and his brother says well she'd be the last person I'd call she was the one that did that to me and his brother tells Gan that what he just saw was nothing he saw them eat a man once Mm -hmm. there was no animals around and the grubs were hungry so he begged the talik to kill him and it eventually did and let the grubs eat his body
2: yeah the post said please please kill me because it was so terrible and that seems like that's naturally what the maggots would do you know right but they remove them and they place them in another animal in in order to preserve the human so that they can give them more babies yeah normally that's how it work. and seeing this young feast on a person it prompted his older brother to run away yeah he tried to leave the preserve but of course he realized how silly that is because they're basically in a prison there so the older brother has become very he has a very keen understanding of what their situation actually is
1: Gan says that his brother shouldn't worry about it because Tagantoy is never going to take him to lay her eggs. And then he says, well, if something happens to you, she probably will. Mm-hmm.
2: And some, you know, Somewhere it says in the story the brother was protective of him in such a way that Gan actually kind of resented it because he realized the protection is really insurance. He knows that his, his brother knows that as long as he's alive, yep. he'll never get bred with. Yep. And also the family will be kept alive. But he also knows that what his value is is as a backup breeder. He's keenly aware of it.
1: So Gan disagrees and says that uh, she would take his sister because she loves Tagato and would be willing to do it totally. Mm-hmm. But they don't usually take women because women are needed to have human children. Right. Sometimes they do since women know what it's like to bear children. Mm-hmm. Uh, his brother asks if she's done it to him yet. Mm-hmm. You know, as if, if she's impregnated Gan.
2: Gan. He says, you're the right age for implantation.
1: And then that just for some reason sets Gan off and he slugs his brother. But his brother's bigger than him and he just totally kicks his ass and then he runs off. Right.
2: (laughs) But now that he's seen childbirth, he's questioning whether that's something he wants to do. It says that his own father went through it three different times. But it was something that they never, ever talked about.
1: So Gan goes into the house and gets the gun and waits in the kitchen.
2: Mm -hmm. Great writing there. It says it needed cleaning, oiling. All I did was load it.
1: So Tagatoi comes in and sees him there.
2: Yeah. Now, this scene is very tense. She tries to console him a bit. She's sorry that he had to see what he had to see. I'm not sure if that's because of his emotional reaction to it and she's concerned about his well-being or if it's because, you know, she doesn't want him to be panicked about it because this is going to happen to him. Right. She assures him the man's going to live and they have this conversation. The boy says, I wonder if he would do it again. She says no one would ask him to do that again. I looked into the yellow eyes, wondering how much I saw and understood there and how much I only imagined. No one ever asks us, I said. You never asked me. She moved her head slightly. What's the matter with your face? I loved this because even though the insects, they're very in tune with the humans, Mm -hmm. there are still things about us that are undoubtedly inscrutable to them. Right. I don't think they would probably understand facial expressions very well. Mm -hmm. But it also tells us that he's never expressed doubt before. This look that he's giving her is completely alien to her.
1: So she asks him if he is going to shoot her. And then he doesn't answer. He just asks another question and asks her, what does Terran blood taste like? And of course, she doesn't respond to that. She just stares at him. Mm -hmm. And then he says, what are we to you? And she goes, you know me like no other does. You must decide. And then he points the gun up under his chin.
2: Right. He says, I don't want to be a host animal, not even yours.
1: And she says, "Uh, you know, you aren't animals to us. The animals we once used began killing most of our eggs after implantation long before your ancestors arrived. You know these things, Gan, because your people arrived. We are relearning what it means to be a healthy, thriving people, and your ancestors fleeing from their homeworld from their own kind would have killed or enslaved them. They survived because of us. We saw them as people and gave them the preserve when they still tried to kill us as worms. And then she says, would you really rather die than bear my young Gan? And he didn't answer. And then she says, shall I go to your sister? And he says, yes. And she wants to do it. And then she goes, okay, I'm going to do it tonight. And then she starts to leave. And then he realizes, whoa, wait a minute. What's going on here? I did. This is happening too fast. Yeah. And then he realizes he doesn't want it to happen to his sister. So he stops her and then agrees.
2: Would it be easier to know that red worms were growing in her flesh instead of mine? So he says, yeah, please don't do it. Do it to me. Uh, and in the end, he realizes that this has to happen no matter what. And he would rather... Spare his sister from it,
1: and it must happen tonight because right, she's got to lay her eggs. I guess yeah. this evening, and so
2: that's why she's been. That's why she's there to begin with.
1: And uh, she said she's going to implant the first egg tonight. She has to do it to someone, and if it's not him, it'll be her. Yeah. So they go up to his bedroom, and this is so creepy. Uh, he gets naked and lies beside her, and she stings him, and it feels good.
2: Then the blind probing of her ovipositor. The puncture was painless, easy. So easy going in. Oh, man. (laughs) She undulated slowly against me, her muscles forcing the egg from her body into mine. I held onto a pair of her limbs until I remembered Lomas holding her that way. Then I let go, moved inadvertently, and hurt her. She gave a low cry of pain, and I expected to be caged at once within her limbs. When I wasn't, I held onto her again, feeling oddly ashamed. I'm sorry, I whispered. Oh, so creepy. Yeah, it's the little bit of, you know, that hurts, so let me get in a better place. Position that there's such a it's a it's a sex scene. It's a sex scene, but even that is more detail of a type that you get in other sex scenes. Yeah. That because this is that a moment in sex that, you know, isn't very titillating, so it doesn't get used. But that moment where you have to somebody gets hurt, you gotta kinda reposition yourself. I'm <laughs> um, it's it's got it's so personal. Yeah. That's what really and it's between these two species. Oh boy, that's a that made me feel very strange when I read that.
1: And then he says to her, while they're in this moment together, he goes, do you care that it's me? And then she replies, you were the one making choices tonight, Gan. I made mine a long time ago. I chose you. I believed you had grown and chose to choose me. Yeah. Now, but seeing what happened to the sky, it freaked him out.
0: She regrets that he had to see that. Terran should be protected from seeing. I didn't like the sound of that, and I doubted it was possible. Not protected, I said. Shown. Shown when we were young kids and shown more than once. She looked down at me. It's a private thing. It has always been a private thing. You won't see it again, she said. I don't want you thinking anymore about shooting me. The small amount of fluid that came into me with her egg relaxed me as completely as a sterile egg would have so that I could remember the rifle in my hand and my feelings of fear and revulsion, anger and despair. I could remember the feelings without reviving them. I could talk about them. I wouldn't have shot you, I said. Not you. She had been taken from my father's flesh when he was my age. You could have, she insisted. Not you. She stood between us and her own people, protecting, interweaving. Would you have destroyed yourself? I moved carefully, uncomfortably. I could have done that. I nearly did. You will live now. Yes. Take care of her, my mother used to say. Yes. I'm healthy and young, she said. I won't leave you like Lomas was left alone. I'll take care of you.
2: And that's the end of the story.
1: That's the end, man.
2: It's kind of odd, too, how you learned that she was actually taken from his father.
1: Yeah, so she's sort of like a sister to him? Kind of, yeah. But not really. It's really weird. cool boy it's really complex there's so much going on and of course there's the judging of a culture that is not ours
2: what do you mean by that
1: well i mean it's you know i'm, I'm judging it by our standards
2: obviously of course you know, right
1: this this is something that maybe this is the best arrangement that they can have as
2: yeah well so that's the interesting thing about this now and now um i think with Black authors, particularly a black female author, people are going to be looking for authorial intent a lot more than they would with, from a white male author. Oh, right. Yeah. If somebody else had written this, we probably wouldn't even be talking. Maybe, you know, we'd bring a little of biography in there, but for the most part, we'd just be more interested in the story. Sure. But people will say because she's black that this is actually a story about slavery or perhaps go a little further and say this is about women's rights. Right. Uh, I think obviously those elements are in there. I mean, the way that the population is being penned in and controlled. Sure. But that's not necessarily how she saw it, right?
1: No, no. She um, said that her initial reason for writing the story was to kind of write out her fear of her body being invaded by parasitic insects, specifically Mm -hmm. the bot fly.
2: Those things are so nasty. I I just watched this documentary about rats. And, you know, the worst thing about rats are the parasites that they carry. Right. But they show them pulling a, a bot fly I just wish I could have unseen that. I feel like the kid in this story. I don't
1: ever want to see that. Oh, boy. So she also said that she wanted to write about a human male becoming pregnant, the risks to their body uh, as well mm-hmm. as it would, you know, having, you know, when a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth, there's there's risks involved to her body. Yeah. And, of course, it changes you. Once mm-hmm. you have a child, your body is going to be different. And, and that's a cost to producing life. Absolutely. That men don't have to pay.
2: No, they like to, I mean, they like to make rules about it, even though, you know, I wonder if any one of them confronted with an episiotomy might change their ideas about, oh, geez. You know, what they think uh, women should or shouldn't do. But that's yeah. you know, veering off into politics. But definitely, so this story, I mean, I love that aspect of it. How would men react if they were the ones that had to become pregnant and they had to go through physical changes and the scary aspects of it.
1: And she also says that, lastly, that this, she wanted to write a story about, quote, paying the rent, which is Mm -hmm. kind of what you were saying earlier, this realistic depiction of human, of a human immigration into space would not just repeat colonial tropes of the the traditional science fiction, but rather require some quid pro quo or accommodation on the part of humanity.
2: Right. So it's not necessarily that we're going to have a dominant race that immediately enslaves everybody. Yeah. But there's going to be some kind of sharing of resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's two interesting things there. The first is, and this ties into what she had said, or or, or that the basis of her novel Kindred, which Mm -hmm. is this idea that you shouldn't, people that were subjugated, you can't, Look down on them and say, why did you allow this to happen to yourselves?" Mm-hmm. There's a heroism in the things that you need to do to survive. We actually see this is a more common thing in pop culture right now. If you look at a show like The Walking Dead, the people in there do terrible things that you would morally not accept from anybody. But right. because of the context of the situation they're in, you actually say, hey, that's actually a heroic thing to go against to give up your children or to just so that the whole of the family can survive. Yeah. That's really having to dig down deep and do something that under normal circumstances you would do, but in a, in a sublimating your own basic human rights becomes a heroic action. Right. This story is taking that on as well, Mm. but also this idea of symbiotic relationships that you can't get anything without something else. It's actually, you know, people, there are people that study this right now. Why are humans or why are other life forms altruistic in any way? Mm -hmm. Because it seems like a lot of those examples, you can tie back to people actually trying to promote their own genes without even knowing that that's why they're doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. We all have these symbiotic relationships the thing that's interesting about the levels in this story is that rich aliens, I mean, the political class, seem to be hoarding these resources as well so that they can control the other's licks. Mm-hmm. And the humans, they're bartering with their bodies and their families to get the best situation. And those humans also control livestock that they can slaughter at will, clearly. Yeah. So in these multiple levels, you know, who's who's in the wrong? Well, I, I think the slave owners are in the wrong. You know, I want everybody to be free. But she's asking you to really question these ideas of good or evil. Right. Because it's not a very realistic situation.
1: With this particular situation, it's not as clear cut. Well, we don't know. But from what we're given, it seems like the humans agree to this situation. And it makes us look at our lives and wonder how much have we agreed to
2: absolutely right how many
1: quarters have we had to cut how many things have we had to sacrifice so that we can get our house to get our food to pay our rent mm-hmm. to be able to clothe our children protect our our things
2: yeah it's quite a lot people are willing to submit themselves to taxes they're submitting themselves to being governed oh yeah by people that they meant they didn't maybe didn't even vote, vote for, for or it. agree to but they're doing it because <laughs> that's the understood to be the sacrifice that you make yeah all of these things are happening all the time and so that's what makes this such a complex and interesting story i think
1: an amazing story really brilliant i recommend everybody actually sit down and read this one it is i do too it is rock solid thanks
2: everybody who recommended it i really enjoyed it extra special thanks to our reader today andrew weary thanks so much for jumping in and handling some difficult language
1: i want to thank our sponsor pulp sonnets and kate shrod who also said that she knew this story loved the story thought it was brilliant and was honored to be sponsoring this one.
2: And we are, of course, honored to have you on as a sponsor. Please, everybody, go pick up this book. That's
1: Pulp Sonnets by Kate Sherrod. It is outstanding, super fun. Do yourself a favor and pick it up.
2: We will link out to it in the show notes.
1: So what are we doing next week, Pfeiffer?
2: Well, we are going to continue Black History Month with another... uh, Well, this is a guy that people might know in lots of different contexts, W.E.B. Du Bois. He's also an author. Uh, He enjoyed science fiction, just like the rest of us do, and he wrote a story called The Comet." Uh, I believe it was published in 1920. We're going to have a look at that.
1: I can't wait to check it out. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey.
2: I'm Chad Pfeiffer.
1: And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
2: At hppodcraft.com.
3: HP (laughs) Lovecraft.com.